This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today, I am speaking with Maritza Giorgio, award-winning journalist and national correspondent for Scripps News. I think that if you are a news consumer, you should be getting news and information from a variety of sources and fact-checking those. Maritza's reporting on the planned removal of the 2020 election ballot collection boxes earned her a Walter Cronkite Award for Excellence in Television Journalism. After many years on air for NBC Montana, Maritza moved to Scripps in 2021, and this year will begin hosting her very own live broadcast from Missoula weekday evenings. Maritza, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Tell us, where did you grow up? What did your parents do? I grew up in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, a suburb of Minneapolis. Okay. And, uh, you know, I went to St. Louis Park High, which I can't say enough about. Tom Friedman went to St. Louis Park High School. The Coen brothers. Yeah. Al Franken grew up in St. Louis Park, didn't go to St. Louis Park High. But, um, you know, it's a it's a wonderful community. I just, I loved growing up there and I love to go back and visit. My mom was in the optical business, and so she uh, was an optician, and then she went on to be a sales rep for eyeglasses. And then my dad lives in Greece, and uh, he um, owned some car dealerships in Greece, and yeah, now he's retired. Very good. And was the uh, studying at the University of Montana Journalism School kind of the way you made your way to Montana? Kind of. You have a lot of family here, I right? I have a lot of family. So my great-grandparents homesteaded in St. Ignatius. Okay. And my grandma was the youngest of 10 kids. And um, my grandpa was a TV meteorologist. Right. He started here in Missoula. He was Missoula's first TV meteorologist. And he met my grandma. And they, you know, courted and got married. And then, like... Sometimes they do. Marriage ends and their marriage ended and he moved on and my mom split her time between living in Big Fork, Montana and living wherever he was stationed. So he was everywhere from Las Vegas to Detroit to Washington, D.C. and then Minneapolis was his big market. So your grandfather did that. He was the first at NBC Montana or Yeah, whatever. it was oh, I think it was called KMSO. Okay. Back in the day. Well, those are deep roots. Yeah, but he he studied uh, meteorology in the Air Force. Okay. And he was a child actor and so he kind of combined the two. He got into radio. He was a meteorologist at at the station that's now known as KECI and he also had a daytime talk show. And his very first guest on his daytime talk show was Senator Mike Mansfield. Interesting. Okay. A lot of threads here to pull. Lots to pull. So now we know a little bit more about why you chose University of Montana as a place to study. Yeah. So I grew up coming out to Montana, of course, to see my grandma and relatives. And um, I just kind of wanted an adventure after high school. Mm -hmm. So Jed Liston came to Minneapolis to do to recruit some students. Okay. And I went to that session in downtown Minneapolis with who ended up being my freshman roommate. And, um, and so we met there. And then I came out and, and visited the school and met with the late Bill Knowles, who was so wonderful. And you know, it was just such a great program. Top 10 journalism school yes. in Montana. I had family here. Um, I got a small, you know, scholarship sure. and it seemed like the right move. 
And you started working for NBC Montana as a junior while, yeah. while you were still a student. Right. Wow, tell, tell us about that experience. 2006. Well, um, th- we just had great, at the time, there were just great relationships between the J School and the local stations. Okay. And so that was kind of the thing, you know, we would all compete for these little spots or jobs or part-time positions or internships just to get our feet wet, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was a job that came open and... Denise Dowling sent out the email. They're looking for this. And um, it was just a part-time production assistant in the morning. Sure. (laughs) Really early. I think we went in, I want to say we went in about 4 a.m., you know, while going to school. Yeah, that's a big lift for a college student. It was exhausting. I remember I for sure slept through my shift once, like all the way through it. Woke up after the show was over. (laughs) Um, But Aaron Yost and I shared that morning slot. You know, slowly they'd said, okay, do you want to front some stories? Get on camera. And she did. She went first. And I remember her calling me and saying, my heart beat so fast when I was live on TV. I thought it was going to beat right out of my chest. So then that made me really nervous. (laughs) Same thing happened with me the first time. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, you became an an indispensable resource for so many people in, in Montana. And really with a, with reporting that kind of brought a level of intimacy mm. to the relationship between you and your viewers and followers mm-hmm. and it, it, maybe a new way. Talk about that experience. You went, you went deep on COVID and really tried to provide a critical public service. It was, uh, I just remember being so scared. Mm-hmm. And I had um, the, the very, the, January 1st, 2020, my grandpa died. Okay. The meteorologist. Yeah. And so it just started off poorly, (laughs) very poorly. And 10 days later, 11 days later, I had a spinal fusion. Wow. And so I was out of work for, I think, eight eight to 10 weeks. I was home. And I, you know, I went from, I was the nightly anchor. I was in there every night with Laurel. And um, it was really weird. And it was hard to just be home and recovering from this major surgery. And um, I, I just... I remember my husband has a souvenir business, a gift and souvenir business. And, you know, early that year, we were watching the news and hearing about this virus. And I remember thinking, I even said out loud, gosh, I wonder if this might affect your business. I mean, I heard sure. some wedding dresses yeah. aren't being delivered. And supply in time. chain yeah. disruption. And yeah. and I just, I don't know why, I, I, I don't know, I don't know why as Americans, we think some things like this won't hit us. But then... All of a sudden, it became very apparent, oh, right. this is going to hit us. And it, it, I just think we were all, you know, right now we can talk about COVID and we're very familiar with it. And, you know, it's just it's not a foreign concept. At the time, though, we just had no idea what was ahead of us. Yeah. And I remember just feeling paralyzed with fear. Um, what does this mean? What does this mean for the future? What does this mean? You know, people are going and wiping out store shelves of food and toilet paper. And it felt apocalyptic a little bit. And so I remember thinking, well, if I have these questions, other people have these questions. If I have these fears, other people have these fears. Mm-hmm. And um, I just wanted to do my very best to get information that was not only accurate, but useful, comforting. If I found comfort in something, I felt like everybody else might find comfort in it. Or if I felt alarmed by something, um, I wanted to, to get the word out. And it really became this interactive storyline because I was at home. And I really, you know, people were writing me or they would call and leave messages um, at the station and they would be delivered to me. And, 
you know, people really had major questions and they didn't know where to turn for answers. And if I could take a few minutes out of my day to help find the answer for them, of, mm-hmm. of course I would do that. I mean, did that change your relationship to the news and to the job? I think that being a journalist in Montana is a little bit weird anyway, mm-hmm. because it's a small state. You know, every, everybody yeah. knows everybody. It's yep. the, you know, Montana is a very big, small town. And so it's hard to cover some events. I can't even tell you how many times something happens or there's a plane crash. I, I mm-hmm. Sadly, I've covered a few plane crashes where I know the, the person who died inside. Mm-hmm. And that just is part of the job when you work in a small market. Yeah. And so um, I've always felt like it's hard to just totally pull yourself out of the news when you work at a market like Montana. Mm-hmm. But that really was, I mean, it just I was going through everything that the viewers were going through. We were all going through it together collectively. And then <laughs> we just weren't. Yeah. And that maybe sets up the next uh, story to talk about, the uh, ballot collection boxes in mm. the 2020 election, for which you won the Walter Cronkite Award for Excellence in Reporting. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. T- tell us about that experience, because it probably conjured a whole n- different host of emotions. For all of the good that COVID did in the very beginning as far as bringing people together, then we took this turn, right? And it became this super controversial, divisive issue, and people took stances and sides, and then we saw that play into the election. Mm -hmm. And it became a talking point instead instead of this thing that we're all up against. And so that was very bizarre. And I think that um, people were just elevated. People became really angry. And there were a lot of nights at home where, you know, I, I put in a camera system at my house based on some of the messages I received. Yeah, I'm sure. And the election that year was no different. I mean, people were really heated about it. And, um, you know, the Governor Bullock at the time, he said, okay, Montana's going to do an all-male election. Mm-hmm. A lot of states did that. And there was disagreement about whether that should happen. You know, people said, of course, we can go to the polls. It was a, it was a complex, difficult issue. Um, and so we're monitoring all that while we were starting to do some stories about what was happening at the USPS. People just being incredibly overworked, understaffed, burnout happening at an alarming rate, mail not being delivered. And so... I was working on a little bit of a story like that, and um, I had a, a source, had a source that I was working with and talking to. So I received an email from Senator Tester's office, and I think they sent it pretty much to all the journalists in Montana that night. But it just said, we're hearing reports that some of these blue collection boxes are just being taken away. I reached out to my source and said, you know, what are you hearing about this? What do you think? And they sent me a list of addresses in Missoula where all of these boxes were supposed to be removed. Some, I think, already had been, if I remember right. But the list, I mean, if you sent that list to somebody in New York City or Washington, anybody who's not familiar with Missoula, it would have meant nothing to them. But if you sent it to somebody who ever spent time in Missoula, you would see addresses right away that did not make sense. Mm. Higgins, Reserve Street. Right. Popular spots. Very busy spots. I started to cross-check these addresses, and 
One of them was right in front of the, you know, main Missoula post office. Okay. You know, my news director at the time, I was working with NBC Montana, and he was very big on Twitter. Like, Twitter is a great platform. Post to Twitter, post to Twitter. And so that morning, the next morning, I, I posted a screenshot on Twitter, now X, of that address list. And so I shared that, and then it just got so much traction. And then, yeah. and then as I shared more throughout the day on that thread more people joined in the conversation. I reached out to Montana's entire congressional delegation. So Senators Tester, Danes, at the time, Representative Gianforte. Mm -hmm. And they all immediately took notice. Like, what is this? What's going on? And they wrote the Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy. And I think by about, I don't know, lunchtime, it had been retweeted so many times. And part of the catalyst was that Rachel Maddow picked it up. Yep. I think that combined with the the pressure from our congressional delegation, by the end of the day, we heard, okay, USPS is reversing this policy. They are not going to remove any more of these boxes until after the election. We'll be back to my conversation with Maritza Giorgio after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hi, this is Joe Anderson. I am the CEO of Reflex Protect, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Maritza Giorgio, national correspondent at Scripps News and longtime NBC Montana news anchor. And so as you're in that, you are reporting but you're also sort of part of the story because you initiated this this Twitter conversation and then you're probably reporting on what's actually happening in Twitter. Yeah. How does how do you navigate those waters is you're not really the story but you're kind of a character in the story. I go back and forth on this because people will get on me about something I post to Twitter. Like wow, real hard-hitting journalism. Hmm. I don't think of Twitter as the front page of a newspaper. Sure. It's a place where you go to exchange information and ideas. Now I can showcase my reporting on Twitter or other social media. I can post interesting things. I like the interaction of Twitter because you get real-time feedback. Yeah. That's part of what connected me to people during COVID. Absolutely. It definitely connected me to people on this. I mean, so many folks responded to that first post with other things I should look at. Go check this out. This is, you know, this website gives you lots of good information. Those are great tips and and threads for me to pull on. So um, I don't really see it as me being part of the story, but it certainly moved that story along. We should probably take this moment to talk about wildfire too, because wildfire is <laughs> a, a deeply important topic yeah. to to you. Recently, covering the Lahaina fires, but wildfire in general. Yeah. Talk about your relationship with wildfire during your your time here in Montana. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, you don't live in Montana without being affected by wildfire. So my very first year when I moved here, 2003, it was so smoky. And I remember golfing up in Big Fork, mm -hmm. um, and you couldn't see the mountains. Had you experienced it visiting before, or was this your first, like, immersive? Not that I ever remember. Yeah, okay. Not so this I was the first time you were deep in it. And so, you know, you lived with it, and we would report on it every year, and... Um, you know, I think just as 
as time goes on and you're developing as a human and you're growing as a person, things start to matter more to you. Mm-hmm. And and certainly after I had my son, news stories just became different for me. Yeah. I I observed them in a way, you know, through a lens of being a mom. So 2017 was a really horrific fire. Horrible. Rice Ridge fire, the yep. Lolo Peak fire. It felt like Missoula was just It was it was apocalyptic. And I remember they sent me down to to Lolo to cover Lolo Peak. And I was down there every day and I could also see it from my house. I yeah. live, you know, Miller Creek and so I could see out my back deck like the the smoke plume every mm-hmm. night. It was just shocking. So I was out there every night and this gentleman named Bill Queen he was a retired Forest Service employee who mm-hmm. came back to do public information. And he really took me under his wing. And he showed me all of these things I'd never learned just covering fire peripherally. Okay. And he helped me really understand fire, the way it moves, the reports we were looking at, the maps, why you know this legend is important and why people think it looks this way, but it's really not. And he made it so interesting. And he also um, just gave me an education. So I just took an interest. And uh, Rice Ridge, gosh, I'll just never forget the night that thing blew up. And so that same year, um, I I met the Flathead Hotshots. Okay. They also took me under their wing. Sure. They took me out with them on the lines of Lolo Peak. It just changed my understanding. And I just think, you know, you, you know, like once you understand something really well, your interest just goes way up. People were waking up just desperate, desperate for information on where the fire moved, how close it was to their home, what their next steps were. What to expect, yeah. And it's the same kind of desperation I felt and so many felt at the beginning of COVID-19. right wanting information it's the same kind of desperation i remember watching my mom um discuss in the days after 9 11. i need information what's happening are we safe what's coming next so let's let's talk about your current gig you make the switch over to scripts in 2021 i believe like first of all for listeners that aren't familiar with scripts tell us what it is and and a little bit about why you made that jump I was approached by, it was Newsy at the time. And so they launched the first free 24-hour news network. So it's not something you have to pay for. And really the goal is to inform, not influence. And it really just gets back to that hard-hitting, solid journalism that, you know, gives facts and, you know, doesn't put a lot of pundits on and and really wants to help educate people on what's going on in our world. It must be exhilarating to be pushed as a journalist at this stage of your career. For me, I just don't want to be complacent. I always want to be working towards something or trying something that scares me. And when I'm in the thick of it, I'm scared and mad at myself for trying it because it really is like risks are scary. But when they pay off, it's, it's just golden. Mm-hmm. I mean, the payoff is so sweet. So I'd love to get your thoughts on a few just state of journalism sure. ideas. The need for information and what's coming next that you described with COVID, with the election, with wildfire, that need for information in real time 
is seems like that need is not going away. Yeah. Right. Yet the kind of noise in that space is um, is 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 getting greater and greater. And the the way to make money as journalists is under threat. You said that Scripps is is free. Mm-hmm. What's the revenue model for Scripps? How do you, is it how is it supported? Well, it's the same as, as any network. I mean, advertising. All advertising. Yeah. How do you feel about that model? I will say that I've never been told not to cover a story okay. or pursue something because of an advertiser. You know, I got into this debate over um, vaccines a long time ago, before COVID. And, you know, somebody was saying, well, you have to you have to push this out because they're paying your, your paycheck. Mm-hmm. And it I said, no, that's never, I've never been told like you need to report this or say this because they're our advertiser or you you can't say this because they're our advertiser. For me personally, that's never happened. Yeah, I, I can see it probably being infrequent, but easy to romanticize. Like folks who watch the morning show or other dramas sure. about journalism, they, the e- easy way to portray these conflicts of interest is to sort of present us with a single journalist that's told no, can't cover that story. I think more about like some of the structural problems with the advertising model. You know, advertisers want their ads to be shown to the right people at the right time, Mm -hmm. right? And we have this sort of fractionalization of our media such that, you know, people select into the sources of media that tend to agree with their pre-existing worldview, and that mm-hmm. gives advertisers an advantage because those they know what they're getting as far as the, the eyeballs yeah. they're getting to. And then journalists probably make choices about where they work based on some of those, <laughs> you know, sometimes pre-existing fractions that have happened. Like, how do you kind of see those forces playing out? I mean, you said that Scripps is fact-based and that's mm-hmm. where, maybe how it differentiates itself versus the competitors. You just come here for the facts. Sounds like that's an attractive proposition to you, but is that a sustainable proposition? We're in a we're in a weird state right now. Yeah. And I'll I'll go further than advertising and I'll talk about social media mm. and likes and clicks. Yes. And you see it I, I think I've seen it on every every news source or wannabe news source, the clickbait headline. So is that is that doing a service uh, you know, to people who are desperate for information? The algorithms have learned that the way to keep us on the platform longer is to keep us yeah. enraged, Addicted. right? Yeah. <laughs> Angry. I just think there's going to be change in this industry, period. Yeah. Yeah. We already are seeing that. And you see even people sending out, you know, they pay for Substack subscriptions, which, you know, I had no idea what that was at one point, but yeah. that's how, you know, people are, are choosing um, where to get their news. And that's even more magnified than just picking a network that you think aligns with your, you know, ideals. Absolutely. It's picking an actual person yeah. and their message and all, or even podcasts, you mm-hmm. know, I mean. For sure. Look at Joe Rogan and the success of his podcast. And some people only get their news from Joe Rogan. And, you know, I'm not going to say that's good or bad, but I think that if you are a news consumer, you should be getting news and information from a variety of sources and fact-checking those. And don't just believe every single thing you hear um, on a podcast or a TikTok video or a social media post. I mean, you should be digging into this and seeing what multiple sources are reporting. 
The other thing is, it seems like most customers, they're not paying for news, they're paying for analysis, right? Like yes. that, that model's not funding right. news gathering, it's funding analysis. And here's the reality. We have newspapers closing. We have news right. deserts across the country because people are dropping their subscriptions. And they're dropping subscriptions that pay local reporters in Montana and elsewhere mm-hmm. and putting that money into, yeah, getting analysis from one individual or one individual that has maybe guest comment- commentators. But, um, you know, if if the idea is you want to fund news without advertising, well, then you have to fund news. You have yeah. to pay for your newspaper. Right. You have to pay the organization's providing you that news and the organizations that you trust. Again, I think people I think people need access to yeah. There's a public service piece to it. There's a public service piece to it. The problem with the internet is there's no filtration system. And so and you know, certainly there isn't one with newspapers either. There are plenty of newspapers that put out, you know, fake fake news, I'll call it. Um, and then you have, you know, newspapers that are just totally satirical, like The Onion. And that's, you know, that serves a purpose and it's mm-hmm. hilarious. Um, but, you know, it's a lot harder to publish a newspaper with bad information than it is to put something on the internet. In our remaining time, I'd love to just talk a little bit about your work with the Mansfield Center. Yeah. Incredible organization, part of the University of Montana. You're on the advisory board there. You all have just been providing <laughs> such amazing educational experiences for for so many people in in this community for a long time now. The the guests you're getting in and and the way you're connecting with the populace, it's just pretty remarkable. So talk about that. The idea really is is to reach people and is to have these conversations about public discourse and diplomacy and kind of restoring civility in our political landscape and in our discussions surrounding it in the name of Senator Mike Mansfield, who um, was just known for being a statesman, working across the aisle. And, and, you know, you can disagree on the floor, but you go out to dinner that night and you're friends. And um, boy, it's, it's something that's even hard to think about these days. It is. It sort of seems like an artifact from a prior time. At the same time, it's a set of values that we need so much right now. Right. And so the the question is, how do we get back to that? Yeah. And um, we have had some just incredible speakers this year, especially. Mm-hmm. The comments and the hatred and um, just just the volatility of social media has really, I think it just kind of veils how we view all of this. And getting people to the actual table face-to-face, I think, is a start. Yeah. And it seems like that's the sensibility that drives your reporting as well, just bringing people together through information. It doesn't always. And um, certainly, I have had my share of hateful messages and threats about um, my reporting. But at the end of the day, as long as, you know, it's fact checked and, you know, I, I stand by it, then that's all I can do. If you if you are yourself and people don't like you for it, well, what can you do about that? You can't be anything but yourself. You got to be authentic. Yep, that's right. Well, Maritza, thanks so much for spending some time with us today, telling us about your story and the, the stories that uh, drive you. And um, yeah, best of luck down the road. All right, thanks so much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. Ella Hall is our production assistant. VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.